I want to tell the guy on the roof all about it. I want to tell him that I know exactly how he feels right now, and that if he doesn't flatten himself like a pizza on the sidewalk, it'll pass. This week on Selected Shorts, high stakes. An assassin in the figure of a middle-aged cleaning woman, flush-faced and panting on the stairs, who'd suspect? I'm Cynthia Nixon, and you're listening to Selected Shorts, the program that brings you great short fiction, read live on stage at Symphony Space in New York City. If you want to guarantee an encounter with provocative, unsettling fiction, you can do no better than to bring together two masters of the form, which is why we planned an evening with literary friends Joyce Carol Oates and Edgar Carrot. We now begin with a taut tale by Carrot, Fly Already. The stakes are very high, as in life or death. Liev Schreiber performs Fly Already. P.T. sees him first. We're on our way to the park to play ball when he, he suddenly says, Daddy, look! His head is tilted back and he's squinting hard to see something far above me. And before I can even begin to imagine an alien spaceship or a piano about to fall on our heads, my gut tells me that something really bad is happening here. But when I turn to see what P.T. is looking at, All I notice is an ugly four-story building covered in plaster and air conditioners as if it has some kind of skin disease. The sun is sitting directly on it, slightly blinding me, and as I'm trying to get a better angle, I hear P.T. say, he wants to fly. Now I can see a guy in a white button-down shirt standing on the roof railing looking straight at me. And behind me, P.T. whispers, is he a superhero? But instead of answering him, I shout at the guy, don't do it. The guy stares at me and doesn't answer. I shout at him again, don't do it, please. Whatever brought you up there must seem like something you'll never get over, but believe me, you will. If you jump now, you'll leave this world with that dead end feeling. That'll be your last memory of life, not family, not love, only defeat. But if you stay, I swear to you, by everything I hold dear, that your pain will start to fade. And in a few years, the only thing left will be a weird story you tell people over a beer, a story about how you once wanted to jump off a roof and some guy standing below shouted at you. What? (laughs) The guy on the roof yells back at me, pointing at his ear. He probably can't hear me because of the noise coming from the road, or maybe it isn't the noise because I heard his what perfectly well. Maybe he's just hard of hearing. P.T., who's hugging my thighs without being able to encircle them completely as if I were some kind of giant baobab tree, yells at the guy, Do you have superpowers? But the guy points at his ear again as if to say he can't hear and shouts, I'm sick of it. Enough. How much can I take? P.T. shouts back at him as if they were having the most ordinary conversation in the world. Come on, fly already! (laughs) And I'm starting to feel that stress, the stress that comes with knowing that it's all on you. I have it a lot at work with the family, too, but not as much. 
like what happened on the way to Lake Kinneret when I tried to brake and the tires locked. The car started to skid along the road and I said to myself, either you fix this or it's all over. That time driving to the Dead Sea, I didn't fix it. And Liat, the only one not buckled in, died and I was left alone with the kids. PT was two and barely knew how to speak, but Amit never stopped asking me, when is mommy coming back? When is mommy coming back? And I'm talking about after the funeral. He was eight then, an age when you're supposed to understand what it means when someone dies, but he kept asking. And even without the constant annoying questions, I knew that everything was my fault and wanted to end it all, just like the guy on the roof. But here I am today, walking without crutches, living with Simona, a good dad. I want to tell the guy on the roof all about it. I want to tell him that I know exactly how he feels right now, and that if he doesn't flatten himself like a pizza on the sidewalk, it'll pass. I know what I'm talking about, because no one on this blue planet was as miserable as I was. He just has to get down from there and give himself a week, a month, even a year if necessary. But how can you say all that to a guy who's half deaf? <laughs> Meanwhile, PT pulls my hand and says, he's not gonna fly today anyway, Daddy. Let's go to the park before it gets dark. But I stay where I am and shout as loudly as I can. People die like flies all the time, even without killing themselves. Don't do it. Please, don't do it. The guy on the roof nods. Looks like this time he heard something and shouts back at me. How did you know? How did you know she died? Someone always dies. I'm gonna yell back at him. Always. If not her, then someone else. But that won't get him down from there, so instead I shout, There's a kid here! And I point at P.T. He doesn't need to see this! Then P.T. yells, Yes, I do! Yes, I do! <laughs> Come on and fly already before it gets dark. <laughs> it's December and it really does get dark early. <laughs> if he jumps, that'll be on my conscience too. Irena, the psychologist at the clinic, will give me that after you, I'm going home look of hers and say, you're not responsible for everyone. You have to get that into your head. And I'll nod because I know that the session ends in two minutes and she has to pick up her daughter from daycare. But it won't change anything because I'll have to carry that deaf guy on my back along with Liat and Amit's glass eye. I have to save him. Wait there for me! I scream as loudly as I can. I'm coming up to talk to you! I can't go on without her, I can't, he shouts. Wait a minute, I yell and say to P.T., come on, sweetie, let's go up to the roof. P.T. gives an adorable shake of his head, the way he always does right before he sticks the knife in and says, if he flies, we can see it better from here. <laughs> he won't fly, I say, not today. Let's go up there just for a minute. Daddy has to tell the man something, but P.T. persists. So yell from here. His arms slips out of my grasp and he throws himself down on the ground the way he likes to do to Simona and me at the mall. Let's race to the roof, I say. If we get there without stopping, P.T. and Daddy can get ice cream as a prize. Ice cream now, P.T. wails, rolling around on the sidewalk. Ice cream now. 
I have no time for this crap. I pick him up. He squirms and screams, but I ignore it, and I start running toward the building. What happened to the kid? I hear the guy shout from the roof. I don't answer and race into the building. Maybe his curiosity will stop him for now. Maybe it'll keep him from jumping long enough for me to get up to the roof. The kid is heavy. It's hard to climb all those stairs when you're holding a five-and-a-half-year-old kid in your arms, especially one who doesn't want to go up the stairs. By the third floor, I'm completely out of breath. A fat redhead who must have heard P.T.'s screams opens her door a crack and asks who I'm looking for, but I ignore her and keep climbing. Even if I want to say something to her, I don't have enough air in my lungs. No one lives upstairs, she shouts after me. It's just the roof. When she says roof, her shrill voice breaks and P.T. yells back at her in a tear-filled voice, Ice cream now! Now! I don't have a free hand to push open the door that should lead outside. My arms are full of P.T. who doesn't stop flailing, so I kick it as hard as I can. The roof is empty. The guy who was on the railing a minute ago isn't there anymore. He didn't wait for us, didn't wait to find out why the kid was screaming. He flew, P.T. sobs. He flew, and because of you, we didn't see anything. I start walking toward the railing. Maybe he changed his mind and went back into the building, I try to tell myself. But I don't believe it. I know he's down there. His body sprawled on the sidewalk at an unnatural angle. I know it, and I have a kid in my arms who absolutely should not see that because it'll traumatize him for the rest of his life, and he's already been through enough. But my legs take me to the edge of the roof. It's like scratching a wound, like ordering another shot of shivis when you know you've already had too much to drink, like driving a car when you know you're tired, so tired. Now that we're right at the railing, we start to feel the height. P.T. stops crying and I can hear both of us panting and the ambulance siren in the distance, it seems to be asking me, why? Why do you need to see it? You think it'll change anything? Make anyone feel better? Suddenly the redhead's shrill voice commands me from behind, put him down. I turn around, not really understanding what she wants. Put me down, P.T. shouts too. It always gets him going when a stranger butts in. <laughs> He's just a kid, the redhead keeps saying. But her voice is suddenly cracked and soft. She's on the verge of tears. The sound of the siren is getting closer and the redhead starts walking toward me. I know you're suffering, she says. I know that everything is so hard. I know, believe me. There's so much pain in her voice that even P.T. stops flailing and stares at her, mesmerized. Look at me, she whispers. Fat? Alone? I had a child once, too. You know what it is to lose a child? Do you have any idea of what you're about to do? Still in my arms, P.T. hugs me tight. Look at what a sweet child he is, she says. Already close to us, her thick hands stroking P.T.'s hair. There was a man here, P.T. says, fixing his huge green eyes, Liat's eyes, on her. There was a man here, but now he flew away, and because of Daddy, we didn't see him. 
The siren stops right under us, and I take another step toward the railing, but the redhead's sweaty hand grabs mine. Don't do it, she says. Please, don't do it. P.T. has a scoop of vanilla in a plastic cup. I order pistachio and chocolate chip in a cone. The redhead asks for a chocolate milkshake. All the tables in the ice cream parlor are filthy, so I clean one for us. P.T. insists on tasting the milkshake, and she lets him. She's called Liat, too. It's a common name. She doesn't know about our Liat, about the accident. She doesn't know anything about us, and I don't know anything about her, except that she lost her kid. When we left the building, they were putting the guy's body in the ambulance. Luckily, it was covered with a white sheet, one less image of a corpse in my mind. The ice cream is too sweet for me but P.T. and the redhead look happy. With his cone in one hand, he reaches out for her milkshake with the other. I don't know why he always does that. After all, he's still eating his ice cream. Why does he need more? I open my mouth to say something to him, but the redhead signals that it's okay and gives him her almost empty cup. Her son's dead. My wife's dead. The guy on the roof is dead. He's so cute, she whispers as P.T. strains to suck up the last drop of milkshake in the paper cup. He really is cute. Liev Schreiber read Edgar Carrot's Fly Already. I'm Cynthia Nixon. Next... A dark miniature from Oates. A frayed marriage really comes apart at the seams when the needy husband starts a strange ritual. Listen as Diana Agron almost sings, Where Are You? The husband had gotten into the habit of calling the wife from somewhere in the house. If she were upstairs, he was downstairs. If she were downstairs, he was upstairs. And when she answered, yes, what? He would continue to call her as if he hadn't heard. And with an air of strained patience, hello, hello. Where are you? And so she had no choice but to hurry to him, wherever he was, elsewhere in the house, downstairs, upstairs, in the basement, or outside on the deck, in the backyard, or in the driveway. Yes, she called, trying to remain calm. What is it? And he would cup his hand to his ear and tell her a complaint, a remark, an observation, a reminder, a query. And then later, she would hear him calling again with a new urgency. Hello? Hello? Where are you? And she would call back. Yes? What is it? trying to determine where he was. And he would continue to call her, not hearing her, for he disliked wearing his hearing aid around the house with only the wife to be heard. 
He'd complained that one of the little plastic devices in the shape of the snail hurt his ear. The, the tender inner ear was reddened and it even bled. So he would call pettishly, hello, where are you? For the woman was always going off somewhere out of his range of hearing. He never knew where the hell she was or what she was doing. At times, her very being exasperated him, until finally she gave in and ran breathless to search for him. And when he saw her, he said reproachfully, where were you? I worry about you when you don't answer. And she said, laughing, trying to laugh, that none of this was funny. But I was here all along. And he retorted, no, you were not. I was here, and you were not here. And later that day, after his lunch and before his nap, unless it was before his nap and after his lunch, the wife heard the husband calling to her. Hello? Hello? Where are you? And the thought came to her, no, I will hide from him. but she would not do such a childish thing. Instead, she stood on the stairs and cupped her hands to her mouth and called to him, I'm here. I'm always here. Where else would I be? But the husband couldn't hear her and continued to call, hello, hello, where are you? And at last she screamed, what do you want? I told you I'm here. <sighs> but the husband couldn't hear. And he continued to call, hello, hello, where are you? Hello. <sighs> Until finally the wife had no choice but to give in. For the husband sounded vexed and angry and anxious. But descending the stairs, she tripped and fell, fell hard, and her neck was broken in an instant, and she died at once at the foot of the stairs, as in one of the downstairs rooms, or perhaps in the cellar, or on the deck at the rear of the house. The husband continued to call with mounting urgency and exasperation. Hello? Hello? Where are you? Diana Agron performed Where Are You? by Joyce Carol Oates. I'm Cynthia Nixon. Next, Carrot Again with a perfect example of his ability to blend the comic and the rueful. Here's This American Life's Ira Glass with One Gram Short. There's an adorable waitress at the coffee shop next to my house. Benny, who works in the kitchen, told me that she doesn't have a boyfriend, that her name is Sheikma, and that she is a fan of recreational drugs. 
First started working there, I'd never been in the place, not even once. But now, you can find me perched at a table every morning, drinking espresso, talking to her a little bit about things I read in the paper, about the other people sitting in the shop, about cookies. Sometimes they even manage to make her laugh. When she laughs, it does me good. I already almost invited her to a movie a bunch of times, but a movie is just two in your face. A movie is one step before dinner in a restaurant or asking her to fly off for a weekend in Sinai. A movie isn't something you can interpret in a number of ways. It's just like saying, I want you. <laughs> and if she isn't interested and says no, the whole thing ends in unpleasantness. Because of that, I thought of asking her to smoke a joint would be better. <laughs> and most will say, I don't smoke. And then I make some joke about stoners, and it's like nothing. Order another short espresso, move on. Because of that, I call Avery. Avery's maybe the only one from my high school class who was a super heavy smoker. It's been more than two years since we last spoke. I run through small talk in my head as I dial hunting for something I can talk to him about before I ask for the weed. But just as I'm asking him how he's doing, Avery immediately says, dry. They close the Lebanese border on us because of the trouble in Syria, and the one in Egypt because of the Al-Qaeda shit. There's nothing to smoke, my brother. I'm climbing the walls. I ask him what else is going on. <laughs> and he answers me, even though we both know I'm not interested. He tells me his girlfriend is pregnant, and they both want the kid, and that his girlfriend's mother is a widow, but not only is pressuring them to get married, but wants a religious ceremony, because that's what his girlfriend's father would have wanted if he were still alive. I mean, go try and stand up to an argument like that. What can you do? Dig up the father with a backhoe and ask him? <laughs> And all this time that Avery's talking, I'm trying to get him to relax, telling him it's no big deal. Because for me, really, it isn't so terrible whether Avery gets married in front of a rabbi or not. <laughs> Even if he decides he's going to leave the country for good or have a sex change, I'm going to take it in stride. <laughs> but of all things, it's that bud for shikma that's important to me. So I throw this out there. Dude, someone somewhere has some product, right? It's not for the high, it's for a girl. Someone special, I want to impress. Dry, Avery says again, I swear to you. I've even started smoking spice like some junkie. I can't bring her that synthetic shit, I tell him. It won't look good. I know, he mumbles from the other end of the line. I know. But right now, weed just isn't any. Two days later, Avery calls me in the morning tells me that maybe he has something, but it's complicated. I tell him I'm ready to pay for the expensive stuff. This is a one-time thing for me, special. I hardly need a gram. I didn't say expensive, he says, annoyed. I said complicated. Meet me in 40 minutes at 46 Carlbach Street, and I'll explain. Complicated is not what I need right now. And from what I remember back in high school, Avery's complicated, so complicated indeed. All in all, I'm just after a single bud, even just one joint, to smoke with a pretty girl who laughs at my jokes. I don't have the headspace right now for a meeting with hardened criminals or whoever it is that lives over on Karlbach. Avery's tone on the telephone is enough to stress me out. And also, he said complicated twice. When I get to the address, he's already waiting. And he's still got the helmet from his scooter sitting on his head. This guy, he says to me, panning on the stairs, the one that we're heading up to now, He's a lawyer. My friend cleans his house every week, but not for money. She does it for medical marijuana. 
He's got a bad cancer, the something, I'm not sure which part. He's got a prescription for 40 grams a month, but can barely smoke it. I asked her to ask him if maybe he wants to lighten his load a little, and he said he'd discuss it, but insisted that two people come. I don't know why. So I picked up the phone and called you. Avri, I say to him, I asked for a bud. I don't want to go to some drug deal with a lawyer you've never met before in your life. It's not a deal, Avri says to me. It's just a person who requested the two of us stop by his apartment to talk. <laughs> if he says something to us that doesn't sit right, we say goodbye immediately and cut loose. In any case, it won't be a deal today. I don't have a shekel on me. At most, we'll know we've got things rolling. I still don't feel good about it. Not because I think it'll be dangerous, but because I'm afraid it'll be unpleasant. I just can't handle unpleasant. <laughs> to sit with unfamiliar people in unfamiliar houses with that kind of heavy atmosphere looming, it does me bad. <laughs> no, Avery says, just go up, and after two minutes, make like you got a text and have to run. Don't leave me hanging. He has two people show up. So walk in the house with me so I don't come off like an idiot, and one minute after that, just split. It still won't sit right, but when Avi puts it that way, it's hard for me to say no without coming off like a dick. The lawyer's last name is Corman. At least that's what's written on the door. And the guy's actually all right. He offers us Cokes, puts a lemon wedge in each glass with some ice, like we're in the lobby of a hotel. And his apartment's all right, too. Bright, it even smells good. Look, he says, I've got to be in court in an hour. A civil suit over a hit and run involving a 10-year-old girl. The driver barely did a year in jail, and now I'm representing the parents who are suing him for two million. He's an Arab, the one that hit her, but from a rich family. Wow, Avri says, as if he has any idea what this corpsman is talking about. <laughs> but we're here about a completely different matter. We're Tina's friends. The subject we came to discuss is weed. It's the same subject, Corman says, impatient. If you give me a chance to finish, you'll understand. In this case, the family of the driver is going to come out in numbers to show their support. On the side of the dead girl, outside of her parents, not another soul is going to show. And the parents are just going to sit there silently with their head bowed, not saying a word. Avery nods and goes quiet. He still doesn't understand, but doesn't want to aggravate Corman. I want you and your friend here to come to court, <laughs> acting like you're related to the victim, and make a ruckus, make some noise, scream at the defendant, call him a murderer, maybe cry, curse a bit, but nothing racist, just you piece of shit, things of that nature. <laughs> in short, they should feel your presence. They need to understand that there are people in the city who feel he's getting off cheap. It may sound stupid to you, but things like that affect judges deeply. It shakes him up a little, shakes the mothballs from those old dry laws, rubs the judges up against the real world. About the weed, Avery tries. I'm just getting to that now, Corman cuts him off. Give me that half hour in court, and I'll give you each 10 grams. If you scream loud enough, maybe even 15. What do you say? I just need a gram, I tell him. <laughs> How about you sell it to me and we call it a day? After that, you and Avri sell, Corman laughs. For money? What am I, a dealer? I may give a baggie to a friend here and there as a little present. So give me a present, I beg. It's a fucking gram. But what did I say just a second ago? Corman smiles an unpleasant smile. I'll give 
first, just prove to me that you're really a friend. If it wasn't Avri, I'd never agree. But he's telling me that this is our chance. And it's not like we were doing something dangerous or breaking the law. I mean, smoking dope is against the law. But screaming at somebody who ran over a little girl, that's not only legal, it's downright normative. <laughs> who knows, he says, if there are cameras there, they might even see us on the nightly news. But what's the deal with pretending like we're family, I keep saying. I mean, the girl's parents will know we're not related. He didn't tell us to say we're related, Aubrey says in defense of Corman. He just said that we should scream. If anyone asks, we can always tell them, we read it in the paper and we're just citizens who are truly engaged. <laughs> we're having this conversation in the courthouse lobby, even though it's sunny outside. Inside, it's dark. It smells like some mix of sewage and mildew. And even though Avri and I keep on arguing, it's long been clear to both of us that I'm already in. If I weren't, I wouldn't have come here with him on the back of the scooter. Don't worry, he says to me. I'll scream for us both. You don't have to do anything. Just act like you're a friend that's trying hard to calm me down, just so they feel that you're with me. The reason Avri tells me that I don't have to scream is because half the driver's family is already there, staring us down in the lobby. The driver himself is chubby, looks really young. And now he talks to every new person who arrives, kissing them all like it's a wedding. At the plaintiff's table next to Corman and another young lawyer with a beard sit the parents of the girl. They don't look like they're at a wedding. They look wiped out. The mother's maybe 50 or older, but small, like a tiny bird. She has short gray hair and looks completely neurotic. The father sits there with his eyes closed. Every once in a while, he opens them, and after a second, closes them again. The proceedings begin, and it looks like we've come at the end of some complicated process, and everything sounds kind of technical and fragmented. They just keep murmuring the numbers of different sections and articles. I try to picture Shikma and me sitting here in court after our daughter has been run over. We're destroyed but we're supporting each other. And then she whispers in my ear, I want that fucking murderer to pay. <laughs> it's not fun to imagine, so I stop. Instead, start to imagine the two of us in my apartment, smoking something, watching some National Geographic documentary about animals with the TV on mute. Somehow, we suddenly start making out. And when she clings to me with a kiss, I feel her chest crushed up against mine. Hyena! Avri jumps up in the gallery and starts yelling, what are you smiling at? You killed a little girl! Standing there in your polo shirt like you're on a cruise, they should let you rot behind bars. <laughs> Some of the relatives from the driver's family start coming in our direction and I stand up and act like I'm trying to calm Avri down. Actually, I'm trying to calm Avri down. <laughs> The judge bangs his gavel and calls on Aubrey to come to order. He says if Aubrey doesn't stop screaming, the court officers will toss him out by force, which at the moment sounds like a far more pleasant option than interacting with the driver's entire family, a few of whom are now standing an inch from my face and cursing and shoving Aubrey. Terrorist! Aubrey shrieks. You deserve the death penalty! I have no idea why he says that. But one guy with a huge mustache slaps him. 
I try to separate them to get between him and Avri and catch a headbutt to the face. The court officers drag Avri out. On the way out, he gets in one last, you killed a little girl. You plucked a flower. If only they'd murder your daughter too. By the time he says that, I'm already on the floor on all fours. Blood runs from my nose or from my forehead. I'm not even sure exactly where it's dripping from. Right when Avri is delivering that bit about the driver's daughter being killed as well, somebody lands a good, solid kick to my ribs. As soon as we get back to Carmen's house, he opens the freezer and gives me a bag of frozen peas, tells me to press hard. Avri doesn't say a thing to him or to me, just asks where the weed is. <laughs> Why did you say terrorist? Corman asks. I told you specifically not to mention that he's an Arab. Terrorist is not anti-Arab. Avri says defensive. It's like murderer. The settlers also have terrorists. Corman doesn't say anything to him. He just goes into the bathroom and comes out with two little plastic bags. He hands me one, throws the other to Avri, who nearly fumbles the catch. There's 20 in each one, Corman says to me as he opens the front door. You can take the peas with you. The next morning at the cafe, Sheikma asks what happened to my face. I tell her it was an accident. I went to visit a married friend and slipped on his kid's toy on the living room floor. And I was already thinking you got beat up over a girl, Sheikma says, laughing, and brings me my espresso. That also happens sometimes. I try to smile back. Hang around with me long enough, you'll see me get beat up over girls and over friends and defending kittens. But it'll always be me getting beat up and never doing the beating. You're just like my brother, Shikma says, and continues to laugh. The kind of guy who breaks up the fight and then ends up getting hit. I can feel the plastic bag with the 20 grams rustling in my coat pocket. But instead of paying attention to it, I ask her if she's had a chance to see the new movie about the astronaut whose satellite blows up, leaving her stranded in outer space with George Clooney. She says no, and asks me what that has to do with what we're talking about. Nothing, I confess. But it sounds pretty awesome. It's 3D with the glasses and everything. Do you, maybe, want to go see it with me? There's a moment of silence. And I know that after it passes, the yes or the no will come. In that moment, the image pops back into my head. Shikma crying, the two of us in court holding hands. I try to change channels to switch to the other image, the two of us together, kissing on my torn living room couch. Try and fail. That picture, I just can't shake it. Ira Glass performed Edgar Carrot's One Gram Short. I'm Cynthia Nixon. When we return, an unlikely assassin. You're listening to Selected Shorts, recorded live in performance at Symphony Space in New York City and at other venues nationwide.
Welcome back to Selected Shorts. I'm Cynthia Nixon. We brought two great writers together for this show, Joyce Carol Oates and Edgar Carrot. And we're finishing it up with a gripping story by Oates. And just a word for parents of younger children. This story is funny, but it's also pretty gory. Here's Becky Ann Baker to read Assassin. Hissing sounds like snakes first came to me through the steamed radiator. Waking open-mouthed, the inside of my mouth raw and festering from what had been done to it while I'd been made to sleep a drugged sleep in this terrible place. Then the whisper of hope. Assassin. Assassin. The room I was assigned at St. Clement House, this was the first insult, this was unforgivable. The room, the bed, the bed with the lumpy, smelly mattress on a high floor of the house had to climb stairs with my swollen ankles, weight, panting like a dog, had to make my way along the winding corridor like a rat in a maze, insult at my age. Pre-diabetic was the diagnosis, hypertension. To be assigned such sleeping quarters in a bloody attic, low ceiling, no privacy, I would have to share a dreary, dripping lavatory with strangers. It was not fair or just. St. Clement House, where residents are the staff and the staff are residents. You will look out for one another, they told us. Smug bastards, all of them. There are paid nurses, nurses' aides, attendants, but not many of these, and so we are all obliged to assist one another unpaid when required. Dr. Schumacher is the resident psychologist, but Dr. S does not reside in the house, does not linger in the house any longer than is necessary. The bastard is clear of us by 5 p.m. and on his way. I was meant to be an equal of Dr. S, for I'm educated, but was cheated of my destiny by reason of my sex, female. Also, unacknowledged enemies in the government. After my discharge from the hospital, where I was kept against my volition for eight months, deemed not ready to return to a normal life and so sentenced to a halfway house, as it is laughably called, half halfway house it is, and now the worst insult to be assigned one of the fifth floor dormer rooms where at 53 I am old enough to be the grandmother of most of the residents, and I am not a junkie or a souse, I am not gaga like some, I am not a filthy slut, hardly, <laughs> but forced to cohabit with such crippled specimens of humanity for the sake of a bed and food to eat until I am well enough again to live by myself and tend to my own needs. My only friend does not live here. My dear friend, like a sister, I have known since St. Agatha's grade school is Pris Rintz, who is my age and stout like me and with a plain, honest face like raw bread dough. And when I am well enough again, Pris Rintz has said I might live with her in a room in her house if I could pay just a few dollars a week to help with rent and expenses. It is very surprising. Pris Rintz is a cleaning woman for the Prime Minister himself. Would you believe that? 
Yet it is so. For 30 years, Pris Reince has worked for the same cleaning service that is assigned to the PM's residence at Queen Square. But if you ask the woman what the PM is like, she will blink and stammer and seem not to know. Guess I don't see much of them or any of them. A dull female, not like me. Well, I'd known that Pris Reince cleaned the PM's residence and had done so for many years, but it never struck me much until the other day, waking like I did, stunned and swallowing, not knowing at first where the hell I was, hissing in the radiator. Assassin. I love the sound of that word, assassin. Not killer, not murder, those are common words, not even executioner. Though there is something about this word I am beginning to admire. Assassin, executioner, in the service of fairness and justice. The insult of my room on the fifth floor and how we are fed here in the half halfway house, cold, gluey oatmeal one morning, and when I spat out a mouthful onto my spoon, disgusted to see what resembled a small wizened piece of meat. Your own heart, the whisper came to me, laughing. Yet the idea of assassination did not occur to me for some time. I've lost track of the day since that time, but it might have been a month at least. What began in the hissing in a dream and spread out of the dream like a potato sprouting roots in dank soil. Assassin. Somehow it came to me that I would saw off the head of the arrogant bastard prime minister. This would be my destiny, not the other, not to be Dr. S and lorded over the mentally enfeebled addicts and sluts, for I'd been cheated of that career. But this I would not be cheated of and go down in history like the Hebrew Judith in her triumph over Holofernes. Assassin, assassin. I was slow to realize and to accept, as you would have been, if you had won a lottery and did not dare to believe. Have I won? The winner is me. <laughs> Almost I could hear the crowds applauding on the TV. Hateful, arrogant son of a bitch the PM was. You saw clearly on TV. A bachelor he was, never married. No worse than any of them in any of the political parties. But the PM is the top dog deserving of his bloody head sawed off and fitting the very person who scrubbed his filthy toilet should be the one to saw it off. You see, no one notices us. This will be our revenge. Short, squat, middle-aged female like Pris Reince, me, moves through the world invisible. She, I, have bunions, varicose veins, swollen ankles. She, I, are short of breath making our way upstairs. Hell, we're short of breath making our way downstairs. Not five foot three, 170 pounds. No one has glanced at us in decades. Not a man or boy in memory. We are deserving of respect as any of you, yet we do not receive your bloody respect, so bloody hell with you. In fact, this is our strength. 
an assassin in the figure of a middle-aged cleaning woman, flush-faced and panting on the stairs, breasts like balloons collapsed to her waist, fattish thighs and buttocks in a nylon uniform, who'd suspect? What are you, daft man, that cow? That's the cleaning woman, for Christ's sake, man. Let her through. No, something like this it was that transpired that morning. Very cleverly, I ground up a half dozen sleeping pills to dissolve in Rint's coffee, which the woman so dilutes with cream and sugar, it is not even coffee any longer, but some disgusting sugar concoction. And they are trying to say to me that I am the one who is pre-diabetic. And so there was no difficulty for me to put on Pris Rint's uniform when she was fast asleep and snoring with her vast mouth agape and indeed the stretch waist nylon trousers fitted me like a fist in a glove. No difficulty for me to impersonate Pris Rintz who was near enough to me to be a twin sister so that even if a security guard had thought to actually look at me, he'd have seen Pris Rintz and not me. For it was Pris Reent's ID photo pinned to my bosom, slumping to my waist, and he would not have given that ID photo a second glance either, out of repugnance for that sort of female bosom. Also, Pris Reent's wore an insipid knitted cap to disguise her thinning hair, which suited me too. Okay, Mum, go on through. If a man does glance at you, if you are Pris Reent's, me, his eyes are glazed with boredom. Not for an instant does he see. So wade through security without a hitch, exactly as planned, dragging a vacuum clean on wheels, mop and bucket, canvas bag, in which were stuffed sundry cloths, brushes and cleaning materials. From innocent queries posed to Pris Reentz, I had ascertained which corridor to take into the Prime Minister's private rooms, and there swiftly I left behind the cleaning items and sought out the bloody bastard in the swanky interior for whom I was feeling a fierce hatred. As if in a dream of the night before, the PM had insulted me to my face as so many others have done. You would be surprised as I would how swiftly I moved on my swollen ankles, which would make me realize in reflecting back over this episode how the assassination was a foregone conclusion, like a final move in a chess game. Except until recently, the assassin had not been named. And I would wonder if they had sought out others as the assassin in this case, and these others had proved inferior, and so they had settled upon me with the knowledge that I would not disappoint, for they must have known of me. My previous life, my education that had come to nothing, the sharpness of my intelligence blunted by myriad disappointments of which not a single one was my fault. In the man's bedroom, in his black silk stocking feet, there the PM stood before a three-way mirror frowning as he buttoned a crisp, ironed, white cotton dress shirt with his back to the door, unsuspecting, for Pris Reince would never have dared enter any room in the residence without knocking meekly before. And if there was no knock, there could be no intrusion. And if no intrusion by a stranger, there could be no sudden blow to the head from behind, so swift rushing into the penumbra of the mirror, there was no chance for the targeted one to draw a breath, 
to escape the hard blow of a pewter urn selected from a mantle, fairly cracking the eggshell skull in that moment. You will know what to do as you do it, the hissing voice had instructed out of the radiator. And so it was. In adjoining room, kitchen, there were fancy sharp knives on a magnet board, and of these I selected a knife with a double serrated blade, and for the next half hour or more I was engaged in sawing off the head of the bloody PM as he lay helpless on the floor on a fancy thick-piled carpet. This career politician, as he was known, who had so many enemies in our country, any number of them would have rejoiced in my actions and thanked me for my patriotism. <laughs> to sever a living head from a living body is no easy task. And it is very bloody and tiring, as you might imagine. But the PM was deeply unconscious from the blow to the skull and could put up little resistance. The head, as I would call it, was mine as soon as the head was cleanly severed from the body. It was larger than you would think, and it was heavier. Very bloody, with veins and sinews and twitchy nerves dripping nonstop from the ragged neck. And the skin of the face was coarse and darkening, as with chagrin. And the eyes were half shut, droopy-lidded like a drunkard's. And the hair which was thin, grizzled gray, and not a handsome whitish silver, such as you are accustomed to seeing on the Prime Minister in his public appearances, a hairpiece, which evidently the PM would fix upon his head when he left his quarters. Missing your hairpiece, are you, love? <laughs> the wisecrack issued from my lips unbidden. I wondered if this would be a new trait of mine, a coquettish sort of wit. Oh, it was very unlike my usual self in the presence of men, I can testify. The head was too stunned to respond. Of the eyes, the left had all but disappeared inside its socket, while the right was trying very hard to fix me in focus, to determine what was what. For the PM had not gotten to his position in the government without being sharp-witted. Out of kindness as much as mischief, I sought out the hairpiece in an adjoining bathroom, and this I placed upon the near bald scalp and adjusted as best I could, for even in his decapitated state, the PM was something of a ladies' man. <laughs> now, almost you have to smile to register a man's vanity at such a time. Soon then, I would exit the PM's chambers, trailing vacuum cleaner, mop, bucket, canvas bag, and in the bag, wrapped in plastic to prevent the blood from soaking through, the head, and a dollop of disinfectant to make the nostrils pinch. Leaving the PM's residence, you are not scrutinized. There's only precaution against bringing a deadly instrument into the residence, and when you exit, it's by a different door. Still, it was early, not yet 8 a.m., and if they'd had their wits about them, they might have wondered why the cleaning woman was leaving so early. But indeed, they took no more notice of her than a fly buzzing to be let out. From Prisreens, I knew that a shiny black limousine to bear the PM across town to the Capitol building would not appear until 8.30 a.m., and so no one would miss the deceased until then. 
the headless body I had left covered with a quilt from the disheveled bed. Being headless, a body is not of much interest and interchangeable with others of its sex, it seemed to me. In Prisrene's rubber-soled shoes, with Prisrene's ID photo removed from my bosom, and a coarse-knit nylon cardigan of an unusual shade of lavender that resembled nothing of Prisrene's, and the insipid knitted cap removed, I took the Land's End trolley to the end of the line. There is a place here, I know, that I have not visited in years, but I'd once known well, down behind a boardwalk by the beach, in an area of the beach that is no longer much frequented. And here the head would not be easily discovered. My plan was to bury it in the coarse damp sand with care, for this part of the assassination seemed to be left to me to devise. As often happens, a know-it-all will instruct you what to do, but neglect to include the complete instructions so you must supply them yourself. Now, women are familiar with this. It was not surprising to me. <laughs> the head comprehended my plan, for the right eye was fixed upon me with alarm. Though luridly bloodshot, that eye was sharp-focused. Don't abandon me, it begged. Such nonsense. I wasn't about to listen to such nonsense. In life, the prime minister had had a wheedling way about him that was often remarked upon. Right proper bastard, the PM. One quarter of Scots blood, it was said of him. One of those sly ones who would get his bloody way if you were not careful. So I hid the head in a safekeeping place behind a shuttered stall, still in the canvas bag, but it was so grimy a bag, in the most desperate eyes, not worth stealing. And by this time, I was very hungry. So I went out to have a snack on the boardwalk and then returned, and there inside the bag was the head, flush-faced and chagrined, and the left eye adrift, but the right eye blinking in the harsh oceanside light and accusing, don't abandon me, please. Your secret is safe with me. I will not tell them what you've done. And most piteous, don't bury me like garbage, I beg you. The head most feared being buried alive. I took pity on the head, for I could understand how it felt in such circumstances. In a few days, I would come to a decision, I thought. In the meantime, the head is doing no harm. We are in a sheltered place where there's no one to hear it, and it cannot escape, of course. <laughs> I have set it on a platter with some moisture beneath to keep it moist, as you would keep a succulent plant moist. Now the bleeding has stopped, or mostly stopped. Atop the scalp, I have affixed the silvery hairpiece as the head is anxious not to be seen without it. Soon the head has become a familiar presence, like a husband of many years. Once I'd had a husband, I think I remember this, but not the actual man and not myself as wife. No, I don't remember. Please have pity on me. Please love me. Don't bury me, the head dares to whisper, and kiss my lips, I love you, please. But at this request, I laugh. I will not kiss your lips or anyone's bloody lips. I am calculating where to bury you, in fact. Farther out the pebbly shore, but deep enough so the girls don't smell you and dig you up and cause a ruckus. Now, I'm too smart for that. Fact is, I am just sitting here having a rest, and I'm thinking, and when I am finished thinking, 
I will know more clearly what to do, and I am not taking bloody orders from you, my man, or from any man ever again. <laughs> Becky Ann Baker performed Assassin by Joyce Carol Oates. I'm Cynthia Nixon. Thanks for joining me for Selected Shorts. Selected Shorts is produced by Jennifer Brennan. Our radio producer is Sarah Montague. Matthew Love is our literary consultant. The readings are recorded by Miles B. Smith. Our programs presented at the Getty Center in Los Angeles are recorded by Phil Richards. Our hosts are recorded at Argo Studios in New York City. Our mix engineer is Deborah Daughtry. Our theme music is David Peterson's That's the Deal, performed by the Deerdorf Peterson Group. Selected Shorts is supported by the Dungannon Foundation, sponsor of the Ray Award for the short story, Support is also provided by the Schubert Foundation, the Seedlings Foundation, the Fan Fox and Leslie R. Samuels Foundation, the Henry Nias Foundation, the Sherman Foundation, the Axe Houghton Foundation, and the Joseph and Joan Cullman Foundation for the Arts. Selected Shorts is also made possible by the National Endowment for the Arts and with public funds from the New York State Council on the Arts and the New York State Legislature. Additional support for this program comes from this station. Selected Shorts is produced by Symphony Space.